Welcome to our backyard. This is the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We are two friends having a discussion after everyone else has passed out or gone to bed. Grab a drink and listen as we discuss everything from automation, space exploration, and why the meaning of life is 42. Mike, do you think a pesticide that was designed to kill spiders, keep them out of your house, is all that's needed to prevent Spider-Man from getting bad guys? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know about Spider-Man, but I definitely think it would work on Ant-Man. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I think Spider-Man's got too much human in him, but maybe Ant-Man, because he's so small, Paul Rudd doesn't stand a chance. We're going to be talking about pesticides. That includes insecticides, herbicides, fungicides, all kinds of chemicals that are used to kill a target, a certain target, animal, plant, well, not mammals, but insects. We're going to be talking about where pesticides came from, what they're used for today, the pros and cons, and what we might see in the future. Before we get into that, I'm going to ask you a very important question, Mike. How are you doing, and what are you using today to kill your liver? Damn, you beat me to the punch. I was going to make a drinking a poison joke, but uh, I'm drinking some Jack Daniels and doing pretty good. How about you? Uh, I'm drinking some dead guy ale. Kind of excited to talk about pesticides. This is, this is kind of what I do for a living. Part of my job involves killing things so that other things can grow. And it's actually a common thing in agriculture. But before we get into kind of common or our time pesticide use, I want to talk about where pesticides came from. Pesticides pretty much came from the same, pretty much as soon as we were doing agriculture, farming, we started using rudimentary pesticides. So whether that be salt or heavy metals to keep off certain insects, or maybe we found out that a certain metal would, heavy metal would keep a certain off-species plant off our farm. And since then, we've been experimenting with different chemicals, different whatever we can get our hands on to try and make it so that our fields only have what we want to grow in them. And it's not too uncommon in nature for certain plants to make their own, uh, what we would call herbicides today that kill other plants around them so that only they can grow. So it's kind of another idea we stole straight from nature. Yes, humans have been doing some form of protective farming, I guess is a word for it. Uh, I mean, some organic, quote-unquote organic methods are still being used today, which I assume we'll talk about later in the podcast. But I wouldn't say until about the, I don't know, I'd be jumping too far ahead, the 1800s, the 20th century-ish, that's when more modern chemicals, what we think of in our mind, in our mind came to be. I don't know if that's too far ahead of your thinking there, Nick. No, that's, I was just about to make that jump after I took a swig. Um, so yeah, today we kind of know herbicide or pesticides. Break it down real quick. So pesticides encompasses pretty much it's a broad term. It can include herbicides which kill plants, insecticides which kill insects, fungicides kill fungus. And those are probably the big three. I mean, your biggest one by far is herbicides. Most of the pesticides applied in the United States are herbicides in the ag agriculture and then i think the second largest user is actually golf courses of 
of herbicides. But uh, so you have the big three and pesticides have a bad rap in uh, our current time of what's now 2021 because of the book Silent Spring written by Rachel Carson about the harmful effects of DDT, which uh, pretty much everyone, and by everyone I mean pretty much from the United States to Russia to third world countries were using to control the mosquito population because mosquitoes, which everyone kind of knows, spread a lot of bad diseases from malaria to West Nile. And so everyone was using that to lower the mosquito population, malaria cases go down, life expectancy goes up for humans. DDT had a bad effect on uh, Living certain bird species. Yeah, certain bird species, um, apex predators, their eggs, it made their the shells of their eggs really soft, so they would like be squished by the, the parents, the mother, which is not good. And so then we kind of took a collective we, as the United States developing world, took a collective look and said, wait a minute, are these things more dangerous than we thought? And it turns out, yeah, DDT is, is in fact bad. And there's other herbicides that not as well known, DDT is kind of the main one, that we took a second look at and decided that they needed to go. And so the United States created the Federal Insecticide, Fungus, and Rodenticide Act, most commonly known as FIFRA. And FIFRA is one of the big ones that uh, regulates pesticides in the United States. And that goes through the whole kind of process of how does a pesticide become registered with the government? How does it become kind of labeled? What are its uses? How do you apply to get something registered? And so everything goes through a review. And then after so many years, it gets reviewed again. So if you don't mind, Mike, I was going to talk about how pesticides become uh, registered once they're created. Before you hop into that, I want to add a little history to it. I don't wholeheartedly agree with your earlier statement of that one lady just kind of ruined pesticides, herbicides. The 20th century wasn't exactly great for chemical control and use. And DEET wasn't the only one of it. I mean, we've been using, I mean, from what I understand in doing research of this, the United States kind of hopped on full board with using pesticides in the 1940s to save the potato shit, uh, potato crops, especially because it's World War II and they need the potatoes to help feed their troops. But humans aren't always the great at using chemicals. So to say pesticides did not get a bad rep is kind of uh, kind of ill-guided because they definitely did not start off with the greatest intentions in the 20th century. Neither did most tools used by man. Same as dynamite, maybe firearms, nuclear weapons. Wasn't dynamite used to make nitroglycerin safer so less people would die in mining? Yeah, but that's not... That's what the creator made it for but then people figured out we could blow people up with it i'm not seeing a problem with this but anyhow continue (laughs) so yeah so i guess uh what i meant to say i guess more accurate words would be is that in the past i guess no one really questioned anything about herbicides and after rachel carson's book more people were aware of the harmful effects of herbicides does that does that seem more right? She kind of brought it to public eye. I would agree with that statement. Cool. Yeah, so that led to legislation being created, like I mentioned, FIFRA. So we have all these herbicides, and they have to go through some kind of test to determine, well, if we can use them, or who can use them. 
that whole kind of thing. Um, so the big term, the big thing to taken from FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, which I'm not going to say again. It's going to be called FIFRA from now on. Wait, find... can you say that one more time, Nick? I, I can. I can say FIFRA again, Mike. That'll help you. <laughs> so it, the biggest takeaway is that it uses the term for pesticides that it cannot have an unreasonable adverse effect on the environment. And that's taken to mean any unreasonable risk to man or the environment, taking into account the economic, social, and environmental cost and benefit of the use of any pesticide, or a human dietary risk from residues that result from use of a pesticide in or on any food inconsistent with the standard under Section 408 of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So basically what that says is if you're going to use, if you, the pesticide you create is harmful it better provide a ton of benefit to be used there needs to be more pros than cons is kind of what fifra says so who makes pesticides there's a few companies that do and they're getting smaller every day or they're not getting smaller they're just absorbing the companies that are small because it takes a lot of money to get a pesticide made anywhere from two million to two billion dollars because you need to do all the the chemistry so you need to figure out kind of different ones depend but so let's say okay you're trying to make like a specific i only want to target a certain invasive species so you have to figure out you know have a botanist tell you what in the interior of that plant is different from most of the surrounding plants so you don't get a lot of off species kill or you can go for a broad spectrum, but that really wouldn't pay off. So when I say broad spectrum, that's an herbicide or a pesticide that kills a lot of plants. We already have cheap broad spectrum uh, herbicides, so you really aren't going to waste too much money inventing a new one unless you think you're going to get a high reward. You know, Because if you're not going to get a high reward for your product because it costs so much to make, why you're not going to make it. So you, you figure out what you're trying to do and then how to do that. Once you think you have your pesticide, then it goes to the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. And this is... EPA. Uh, <laughs> and this is a point that I want to uh, clarify because I see this a lot um, from anti-pesticide groups is that this is a their quote big companies are just paying the epa to make to register their products no what's going on is the companies need to provide the capital so that the epa can pay the man hours needed to do run all the tests on every product to determine its efficacy so essentially what that payment that the companies are are making to the epa just gets put back into the scientist who tests that. That's just their paycheck that they're getting paid for. And so they do a lot of different tests. First off, does it work? So they'll test the pesticide on a field or wherever, some kind of test area, and they'll measure, you know, they'll find out certain things about it. It's half-life as as well as um, one of the initial tests, you're going to do your toxicity test. Is it toxic to humans? Does it react with certain things? Can it be stored 
you know, in warm place, like if it's stored in a warm place, what's it going to do? If it's stored in a cold place, what's it going to do? Uh, the big toxicity tests, they are mostly done on rats. And so the way they do this is they feed rats, mice, whatever you animal you're using to measure with, the pesticide that's in question. And then they see kind of how much it takes to kill most of that population or how, man, how much it takes to kill half to figure out the relative toxicity. So they call this value uh, your, your LD50 or your oral LD50 value. It's basically um, how much is required to kill half the members of a population. So if you have, you know, something like like a nerve agent or something, you have like a, a cap full, like a ounce of nerve gas, it's going to take half of that to kill 50% of the population or, or something like that. But common ones, like um, the one that's talked about in the news, glyphosate has a relatively low uh, oral LD50 value, which means um, it's actually less than salt. I'm trying to bring it up here. But so if you had salt and glyphosate, you'd have to drink more glyphosate, uh, Roundup for those not familiar, you'd have to drink more Roundup than you would have to eat more salt to kill you first. Please do not so, drink Roundup. Just want to throw that out there. Or eat more salt than your body weight. Well, I don't think a human can do that. So you can, you could, I'm not going to say anything. Actually, never mind. Continue, Nick. Um, so for every kilogram you weigh, you'd have to consume 50 milligrams of glyphosate to kill you, to kill half of the population. So there's two people standing next to each other, and you both weigh, I don't know. Mike, help me out. What's an average weight in kilograms? Uh, 85. So 85 kilograms. Okay, so times... So in case anyone's wondering, it's 2.2 pounds for every kilogram. That's the conversion. So 85 kilograms is like, I don't know, 178 pounds. Fun fact, since Nick's doing math right now, toxicity has an equation. I learned this when looking up. It's hazardness times exposure time. That usually gives you your toxicity, which I thought was very interesting how us humans always adding math to everything. Somehow we came up with an equation for toxicity, which for some reason I extremely enjoyed. Speaking of math equations, Nick, you got yours figured out? 16 ounces of glyphosate will kill you compared to 9 ounces of table salt will kill you. When honestly, I really think I could eat more salt than that. Well, we're Americans, so of course we can. <laughs> That's very true. Um, but yeah, so, and I think it's important to note that, uh, glyphosate is used to treat plants and as such is not meant to be ingested. Just throw that one out there. Yeah. It's kind of like Tide Pods. It's really good at cleaning your clothes, but maybe don't put it in your body on purpose. Yeah. It's, um, while we're talking about glyphosate or we're going to come back to it, I'm going to continue to talk about how the pesticides get labeled and regulated. So someone creates, goes through the process of creating a pesticide, sends it to the EPA. The EPA does the toxicity test as well as the efficacy test. Does this pesticide do what it say it does? Because no one's going to buy a pesticide that, well, doesn't kill anything. So 
they do all these tests. It takes anywhere from like seven to 12 years to get a pesticide once it's from its creation through the registration process. It's kind of like medicine where once it's created, it's got, I can't remember, like I think it's like 15 years, it's quite a while where it's uh, patented. Then after that time, the patent is open and people can make uh, generic versions, which is why glyphosate Roundup, it's an older pesticide. It's a lot, it's the most common one because it's, it is older and it's passed all the regulations. And so anyone can make it and it's relatively cheap to make. As well, um, part of the FIFRA, it might not be FIFRA, it might be another one, but part of the reg- regulation of pesticides is once they're out on the market, they still undergo review. They're still doing long-term reviews to determine, like, uh, you know, do they cause cancer or what is the long-term effect of using this, which... Like I said, it already takes a while to do that uh, registration process, so they're observed that whole time. But it's not once they're out on the market doesn't mean that it's over. You know, they can be pulled if we find out that oh shit, this causes cancer. Yes, I I think that is important to note. But I am always very wary of the testing for pesticides because a it's a kind of an imperfect system. There's so many variables. When you have so many variables, it's like near impossible to calculate them all. So that's that's not to argument against it. It's just saying it's when there's that many variables and pieces on the board, it's hard to control everything. Also, I would like to know more about their structure and regulations because a lot of the wording I came across was this acceptable amount, which it's acceptable to who because... Unfortunately, a lot of times they didn't have their sources. And acceptable for what? Uh, is it, I mean, humans come in all shapes and sizes, many different backgrounds. I imagine it affects people differently. So that's a lot of variables. That's just a caveat of mine. I would like to know more about the in-depth of their testing because I imagine they're doing it more, I mean, if they have to at such a scale they're working on is generic humans, weight, size, diet, it's, and other chemicals that might get mixed in with it's there's so many variables so that's my only little asterisk to that sorry nick please continue no you're good um so i will say so for they don't test on humans obviously um but they do when they mostly test on like rats and they'll test like pregnant rats see if that has a different reaction and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but pigs and dogs are pretty close to humans, and they'll also test on them to figure out the effect. And this isn't an EPA test, um, but because people are people, there's usually a good amount of evidence of people swallowing uh, herbicides, mostly glyphosate, trying to kill themselves, and there's been 80 cases of ingestion of glyphosate as trying to kill yourself. And I, I don't know how many of them lived. 79 of those were suicides. I, I don't know who was the guy who accidentally drank it. But um, so we do kind of know just from people's trial and error, I guess. But uh, but most of the testing, like I said, is, is actually not most. Testing's not ever done on humans. It's all uh, plants or rats and maybe cows or not cows pigs and dogs and then of course when you're talking about like um stuff that goes into ag so if you're there's a 
Like if you're doing production for like a dairy beef production, then yeah, they're going to spray the pesticide over the field for however long. And usually there's waiting periods. So if you treat your field for whatever, you usually have to wait for the, you know, couple half-lifes of whatever you spray. So it decomposes before you let the cattle back into the ground. Um, and then there's something else you said that I wanted to get to. Oh, safe, who determines what is the cost benefit? So I don't, uh, I don't know if I can answer this is exactly the answer you're looking for, but so that's, it is in an economic versus health benefit, right? So there's certain pesticides that are called restricted use pesticides, RUPs for short. And those are pesticides that you need to have some kind of license to get. And you can use those. Um, but like I said, you, it's restricted from the general population to use. So it's generally only agriculture or some kind of industry that uses them. And they might be because they have some quality that's detrimental to health. So one of the ones that we use is um, Rosol, and it's a rodenticide, and it kills uh, a rodent that eats baby trees. And so that's one of the ones that we use that is harmful to people. Uh, it's one of our, I don't know, more, more toxic, higher toxicity. Yeah, higher toxicity ones. And the reason that it's used is that it saves uh, people a lot of money to do to do a trapping in combination with that and that it's not really going to run off really the only thing it kills is more rodents so since it's it's a little bit more deadly because humans shouldn't eat it but it's not really uh going to leach because it's like a solid pellet that it's considered okay so yeah, I, I see what you're saying is that who is a person who says, well, if it's this deadly, it's okay if it provides this greater good. When it's something that affects me, I want to know this and about it and like the interworkings of it. I don't like releasing. It's probably just my own downfalls, but I don't like relinquishing control to someone else over my own well-being. And well, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, insecticides are all... Well, they're in everything. Everything we eat and consume, from international foods brought in to the home foods in our backyard. It's amazing how much pesticides are used in the United States. Let alone, I don't even know the numbers for the world. But just just a few little numbers and quick facts for you. About 3.2 million tons of pesticides are used every year. And about, we were talking about people using heavy chemicals and stuff like that. About 2.2 people are at risk, heavy quotations at at risk, because I'm not quite sure, and they did not define at risk, because that could mean quite a big thing, that's up for interpretation, but at least 2.2 million people are quote-unquote at risk due to agriculture, pesticides, and Jesus Christ, more than $14 billion are spent on pesticides in the U.S. each year. So those chemicals are everywhere. So I want to know where the money's going, how it's being spent, and knowing it's true going through the loops of how it is researched before implemented. Okay, so let's try and break that down. So you want to know, what do you mean, where's the money going? It's going to the, the EPA? Is that, or like who's spending the money? I would say more spending the money and how they're spending the money. Because, I mean... For... Well, they're buying a shit ton of 
pesticides. That's no, that's not necessarily true because if we look at I don't know the education system where a lot of money goes to administrators, not to the students or the teachers. I imagine that's the same for many other industries, and I imagine the pesticide industry is no different. So it'd be nice if uh, the EPA was. I think it's a government agency, so I think it's technically you could subpoena for the information. It it is definitely a government agency. Yeah, so I'd, I'd be definitely curious because I did not do research on it on how they do their spending, not that they spend or but like how they do the spending. What do they prioritize? Yeah, I, I don't know. Don't know that much about the inner workings of the EPA, but you can when you're sounds like you're kind of worried about like the pesticides. I mean, you can look all that up. Sort of. So one, we missed a spider man, a spider pig joke. We should, probably should have done in the beginning. So one, humans weren't perfect. And I imagine that with pesticides and insecticides, what we figure is okay now. Again, like I mentioned earlier, with so many variables, we don't know the long distance effects. We know now long distance, key key asterisk on what I said by long distance, because yes, the half-life, yes, it takes, it, I mean, Long distance might be for research 50 years for the pesticides they're currently doing. I don't know. But I'm thinking even longer term than that because those chemicals will dissipate. Those chemicals, fun fact, it takes quite a long time for it to get to groundwater for certain chemicals. Glyphosate not being one of them. I was quite surprised. Glyphosate dissolves kind of instantaneously, so it's kind of weird that we use it. Just the longer term effects, which you can't really research because we need it for the market. You need it kind of now. But anytime humans are involved and that much money is involved, I'm always wanting to dot my I's and cross my T's. But I get, I mean, like glyphosate, like we have probably 70 years now of, of data on that. And I would say that I I haven't seen anything. I was going to say one chemical does not stand for all of them. There's, if I was looking. Yeah, but that's, so if you're, when you're talking pesticides, I mean, I'd I would be, I would bet that 50% of all pesticides applied, or let's say 25% of every single pesticide applied in the United States is glyphosate. Yeah, that seems about right. But how does glyphosate react with all the other chemicals, specifically new chemicals? Like, how, what do you mean? How do they, how do they aid in decomposition or how do they react together doing their job or? This, this might be a little far ahead. So maybe we should jump into different, uh, just different deploying methods of the pesticides because there's quite a few different ways and those different ways have different problems of their own which could lead to what i was was which could lead to what i was just talking about okay can we hold that thought while i mention one thing real quick sure so we've been talking a lot about glyphosate specifically roundup probably the most common one most common version of glyphosate Pretty, I'm sure most of everyone has seen the commercials. If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, call some lawyer to get some money. So that study was done by the IARC, which is a research, international something, cancer research, and the WHO to go through a bunch of uh, different um, just things, like a ton of things to figure out what causes cancer. And so then it went someone in uh, California spilled some or so glyphosate was put on the list of probable carcinogens. Someone spilled some glyphosate on himself in California, sued, I think, Bayer at the time. I think it's still Bayer. 
I don't know exactly, but one of the larger chemical production companies. The Ninth Circuit Court of California said that the person wins and they won like millions of dollars. The study that this the WHO IARC one referenced, they were injecting cells with glyphosate, a level that you wouldn't find naturally unless you doused yourself with it. And then that cell would then explode and say, oh, look, people die. Their glyphosate kills people. But I do, if you don't believe me, look it up. But I do want to list the WHO IARC list of probable carcinogens, list some of the, the big ones. Like I said, um, we have glyphosate. We have biomass fuel, a.k.a. wood from like a, a fire. We have red meat, like from beef. Isn't starlight in there too somewhere? Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's somewhere in there. Malaria is in there. And non-arsenic insecticides. Yeah, shift work. That just, just shift work if it disrupts your <laughs> circadian rhythm. Um, very hot beverages. Parentheses above 65 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So t- say, take what, what you want from that. My takeaway is that I'm not going to stop eating red meat and I'm probably not going to stop drinking hot chocolate. So I guess I'm going to get cancer. But uh, let's uh, move on, Mike. You were talking about the ways chemicals are applied, unless you had something to add. Well, I just want to add one other thing is we've been focusing heavy on glyphosate. Glyphosate, from what I could tell, is through and through pretty safe. Like, I mean, with any chemical, with anything actually in the world like even a pair of scissors there's always some dangers with it but from what i can see glyphosate is pretty well rounded <laughs> get it round up well rounded uh nope god damn it uh, not what if puns was on the list of probable carcinogens oh I'm then so i'm happy. i'm stage three <laughs> uh but i just want to say that there are many other chemicals that are different and they interact with each other differently which is ones I'm more worried about. The ones through and through that have been, well, like you said, Nick, used for about 70 years, less worried. But the ones I am worried about can intermingle together depending on how they are dispensed. And boy, there are quite a different ways for dispensing. I think one of the coolest methods, that just because, might be me because I want to you know, drop some air bombs, is kind of uh, something you're a little bit more familiar with, Nick, is airplanes dropping and kind of crop dusting crops you call that an aerial application aerial application good to know that comes that seems to be quite effective but it also has many weak spots in the armor kind of the obvious one being wind wind is uh kind of a, a deadly enemy of aerial irrigation and Wind can very easily pick up those chemicals and put them where they're not supposed to be. Now, granted, if it's like glyphosate, it's not the biggest of deal. But if you're doing more exotic plants or if you're trying a certain chemical because some invasive species is in there, so you need to bring in a more heavy-duty one, et cetera, et cetera, that all makes a big difference. And especially if you're near a still body of water, specifically, a lot of these chemicals, I noticed, don't really affect too much the groundwater now, granted, a lot of these chemicals I saw take a while to get to the groundwater. Some of these half-lives, yes, when they're exposed, nature and surface, they're by the book, exactly what the science says. 
but when they get intermingled with other chemicals and they go deep into the soil and some other X factor happens, they sometimes have a tendency to make it to the groundwater, which takes sometimes over a year, sometimes years to get to. But that's one that I don't know why it's cool that we're dispensing food saving chemicals through airplanes. It seems kind of old fashioned, but yet still modern. Yeah. So let me, uh, so I do a lot of this with a helicopter, not a plane. So I'm talk a little bit about that. So you mentioned wind and wind is a huge factor, not just in for the, the application, but also legally. So most or not most every pesticide comes with a label and it has to say on the label that it's okay for um, aerial application and it'll usually have certain wind numbers usually it's like nothing above like 10 miles an hour and legally so i'm just talking about the state of oregon here for the oregon forest practices act you can't spray above 10 miles an hour and that may sound like a lot but it's not really when we really don't spray above five miles an hour. And I'll tell you why. We want to grow, we use, okay, so first we use our pesticides to, our herbicides to kill competing vegetation to establish our Douglas fir crop trees. So in a, if uh, there's wind, one, we're getting, it's pushing our pesticide away from the target area and pushing it towards a water source, which is, we have buffers on water sources that protect the water from the pesticides. So we can't spray within uh, 100 feet of water, basically. There's certain different measures for different size streams, but just throw that out there to kind of not complicate things. So when you have high wind, that pushes your chemical into that no spray buffer. And then there's no way to explain why there's dead trees or dead uh, grass inside your buffer to the state. So there's a legal ramifications as well as we know that coming from the industry, like I said, I work in this industry. We know that we are, as an industry, we are one mistake away from losing this tool forever. Uh, chemical application is one of the most stressful things that I do. With great power comes great responsibility. And I would definitely say the ability to produce more food so people don't starve. And at the same time, the dual-edged sword where if you mess up, you could kill things or people. So I definitely, definitely high responsibility. One method I saw... Um, okay, real quick, sorry. I was going somewhere, but then I tried to explain a little bit more. So during aerial application of a helicopter, um, like I said, wind is a huge problem, the problem. Um, so we have to be out on the unit in the morning, spray for an hour or two before the winds pick up. Now, we use uh, AccuFlow nozzles, and that creates a larger droplet size for herbicides. And larger droplet size is less affected by the wind. There's People in the past used to use, they're called CP3 nozzles, and they created a very fine mist. Those, the mist was so fine, any wind above like three miles an hour and your chemical was gone. So you couldn't really spray too much. So those nozzles are used for more f fine applications like stuff you need a double coat for, usually like insecticide work, I believe. I don't know. We don't really do too much of that. Uh, actually, I don't, I have yet to do any insecticide work, but I think that that's when you really need a fine coverage, that that's more what that's for. So our, we use larger droplet sizes to keep our chemical where we want it. You can also add stuff to like uh, there's a chemical crosshair 
and I'm sure you can find all sorts of generics to do the same thing. And what it does is it you add it to your mix, and it makes it your uh, droplet size makes your changes the surface tension. Uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Maybe it's that of your water, so it keeps your droplets big, keeps them on target. And where that comes into play is larger droplet size. This is more coarse, so you're not getting the coverage you maybe want but you're getting more on target than if you're using small size. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into this on the back end. A lot of variables. That is for sure. I mean, it's literally chemistry. It's, it's, there's a lot to chemistry and a lot of different methods. One method I want to ask you, Nick, because I want to research this. I came across this YouTube video. I don't know if this is commonly used or it's just one redneck farmer making deal with what he's got. But you know the irrigation system that sprays water that rotates throughout crops? The a center pivot, circle pivot? Uh, the ones on giant like A-frames that reach maybe, I don't know, 30 feet in length. And then just move in a circle? Or... Yeah, sort of, yeah. Or... But they're, they're like on giant... I think, I think... Well, I saw this man use a pump and pump in his own pesticide into that water dispensing system to help spray his crops. Which I thought was ingenious, but I also don't know if that's common or if that's safe. The safe is, I don't know which chemical he's using, so that takes care of that. But I was wondering, since you're a little bit more familiar with the agriculture world, is that a common way of dispensing pesticides? I can't say whether that's common or not. I know most of the application is usually done from a tractor. Uh, it's not, but that's, um, I don't know, I'd say that's like, north idaho i don't know that's just the one area i maybe know about so i'm I'm not sure exactly you know i i know occasionally people will do aerially i don't know if uh i can't remark on that I'm off the top of my head well, I but i mean i don't see i mean it's the same thing if you're using it for irrigation as long as you have a, a check valve on there and nothing's going back out and if you i mean that's so when they do it so let's take let's talk about corn. So corn's a row crop, right? So you have rows of corn. So when you do it by tractor, you have like a a tank on the back of the tractor, right, with nozzles coming out, hanging out for both sides. Your nozzles hang down low in between the corn, so it gets down to the the soil there. And one nozzle will treat two rows of corn. So if you have something like that set up, where your uh, circle is you know, your nozzles from your water is spraying everything, then, I mean, I don't see why it wouldn't. The, what I think the problem with that would be is that unless it's motorized, you're not getting a perfect coverage. So the amount of acreage could be off. You need like constant pressure um, and you need to make sure that all your nozzles are, are working. And, and I don't know, it just doesn't seem like you would get good coverage that way. It seems like a lot of your pesticides would your mix would come out the first couple heavier than at the end if i had to guess but i i don't know well we covered the aerial you mentioned the most common methodology which is using a tractor to dispense the pesticides we i mentioned the redneck way which may or may not be feasible what other ways are there to dispense pesticides besides those pretty much by hand by the ground uh, so you got guys with like a backpack that holds like a few gallons of mix and they go and they 
for steeper ground where you can't get a tractor and they treat it by hand. This is most common out in the woods. Um, I don't really know of too much industrial agriculture that's doing hand treatments. And I want to say, uh, well, we're talking about mixes and pesticides. The predominant mix uh, or the prominent ingredient of any pesticide mix is water. So if we're talking about um, application, so say we're doing an application from a helicopter and we we do 10 gallons of water, 10 gallons of mix per acre. So we'll do a standard like site prep mix. So no trees in the ground. We're going to try and kill all the competing vegetation so that our trees have their best chance of survival. They're not fighting for light resources or water resources. So we got usually three quarts. Three is 32 ounces is a quart. So three quarts, 96 ounces, and then maybe we'll do some six ounces of a mazapir. So 96 plus six, and then do another four ounces of like a sulfametron methyl which is a, um, a solid so you're really out of the 10 pounds only like a gallon of that is uh, chemical and that's per acre so that's I mean that would be if you were doing that in a room the chemical would be like a shot glass spread through the room pretty much so when you see all those things with all the big you know tanks in the back it's everything's pretty diluted um, and so we also do a few other kinds, Mike. We do a spot application. So for scotch broom, which is invasive species, we'll do a mix of kind of like a vegetable oil and triclopyr. And it just uh, space, uh, spray a ring around the base of the plant, and that'll kill it. So it and that's not, you don't target the whole unit. You know, you're just going around finding one plant you're trying to kill and, and get that. And then another uh, spot application we do is called a, like a basil treatment. And so when we harvest a, a stand of timber and there's maples in there, we don't want the maples. They're not a crop tree. We don't get money for them. And they tend to, they don't tend to, they do they re-sprout. So they'll come back with that root structure that they have, which will outcompete any of the trees you put in the ground. So what we do is before the harvest, we come in and we hack them. So the guys come through with machetes and they hack like a circle around the tree that exposes the, the live parts of that tree. And then they'll take a squirt bottle and squirt a little bit of a mazapir in there, or sometimes a glyphosate, um, depending on what you're targeting and then that's another treatment um, there's all sorts of other weird ones too there's a sponge treatment for roadside so imagine you know when you go to the car wash and that thing comes down with all the soap on it yes it's basically that except instead of soap it's uh herbicides and it is touching like the side of the road and everything it touches gets the uh, herbicide on it that then kills it and the benefit of that is you're not limited by wind because it's you know it's thick on the i don't know what you'd call it the sponge or whatever and then there's fumigation um this is stuff that this isn't anything that we do i just am thinking about random pesticide classes i've taken so this is a uh, like if your cat has fleas that thing you put in the room that just like goes with all the 
anti-flea stuff. That's fumigation. Or, like, um, I've never actually seen one in person, but you know in movies how they put those giant tarps over the houses and then they put the stuff inside? Yeah, like the clown-looking structures. Yeah, so there's that. And then, like I said, this is kind of off-topic from... You're more talking agriculture, but, uh, like, rodenticides. So when we put out stuff for mountain beaver control or people put out, like mouse traps or ant traps kind of stuff like that that has an attractant that then will kill the whatever i don't know if you consider that a pesticide or not i would i mean you're using to me pesticides are you're using a chemical to help protect and flourish your crops or, or plants and so to speak that's in my mind what pesticides fundamentally do yeah so i'm sure i forgot a few but uh is there, do you know if there's anything I missed there? For dispensing, no. But I do know all the dispensing, again, comes with some issues, especially if it's close to water. That's the main issue is water, it's location and wind. But if you're careful enough, that doesn't seem to be the biggest issues. Yeah, so I want to say, um, not that I haven't said this before, but this is why it's important to buy products from developed countries like the United States where we have systems put in place to protect water quality and we have buffers and all that stuff and uh, we don't farm right up to the edge of streams and we don't harvest trees right up to the edge of streams we have buffers on all of that because they do not do that in third world countries and they definitely don't do that in China so so and it's it's yep a lot of things I research when doing this is when when people think of pesticides, they think of the poisonous that, and that call, killing people. That was both a 20th century thing and not really a first word, not really a first world issue. A lot of the problems I saw with pesticides is a developing nations, uh, specifically in Asia, Central America, and South America. Central America, to me, based on the numbers I was reading, was the worst of the bunch. I imagine it's because they have a high export of goods because, I mean, it's a tropic zone, so you can grow quite large range of things that other people can't. So I imagine since being a third world country, having high exports, want to make it cheap as possible, quick as possible, make as much as po- money as possible, that leads to unethical farming. For America and Europe, Europe specifically, Europe uses way less herbicides, pesticides, insecticides than I think anyone else in the world, besides, you know, rural environments where tribes and stuff like that, I think... So uh, Europe actually banned most of their pesticides like two years ago? Yeah. So I can't that, remember now. That was very surprising to me. I'm wondering how long-term that's going to affect their farming. I know it probably won't Well, they haven't really had much of a farming community. Nothing compared to the United States. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with that statement. But it, it still will be interesting because even though it's a smaller amount, it's still it's still almost an experiment of seeing what happens when majority of the pesticides are removed. But again, the United States does a pretty good job at keeping the line towed. But again, from the misuse and poisoning of waters, what I saw were Central America, South America, and parts of Asia. So I wanted to touch on the uh, South Central America part. Um, so... It's kind of been talked about in the news, but I think I touched on a different podcast. But when I was working in Northern California, uh, it's not uncommon for uh, 
the cartel to put to grow uh, marijuana plants out in Northern California and all over the place. And they put um, a lot of <laughs> they'll bring uh, pesticides that are actually illegal in the United States, smuggle them across the border to use out there, as well as uh, uh, she what's like rat they'll put rat poison on the actual plants so that the deer stop eating it. Um, so that's a big a problem that we have. But I've also uh, the planting crews. Uh, some of the guys who don't want to get anyone in trouble, but their brothers um, would work for the cartels. Not like what you're thinking. Just you know, the cartels sell drugs. They got to make those drugs. So they'll like you know most of the time they spend time you know planting cauliflower or something. But occasionally they'll plant like pot plants or cocoa or something but they also will do the spraying and stuff and like they don't do they don't have any sort of like ppe they don't have any kind of like anti uh you know like when we do backpack applications depending on the label you have to have like gloves and waterproof gear stuff like that i'm sure they don't have any of that down there no i i imagine the safety regulations are non-existing for a lot of these regions but that was my caveat of when people think chemicals they think poison uh first world countries tend to be pretty good at it but again as our population increases our food supply needs to stay with that demand and when there's money on the table and a lot more demand i'm quite worried that it's going to lead to misuses of pesticides just to keep up with it. Um, so there's something that we kind of touched on in the beginning that I want to bring up now that we're talking about kind of the future of pesticides. Organic does not mean pesticide-free. And, well, I mean, that's pretty much all I had to say. So you can still use organic, pes- organic pesticides on organic crops as long as the pesticide's organic. And usually they're a lot less safe and you have to use a lot more of them than... Uh, I don't know, synthetic pesticides is what you would call them. But I do want to say that, you know, here here's like the, the pros and cons, right? So pesticide use enables American agriculture to be more efficient. We can grow more crops on less land and use less CO2 while doing it. When we stop using pesticides, we become less efficient, which may sound good because we're not using pesticides, but then that just means we have to cut down more forest or more prairie to grow these crops in to provide for everyone, which we're not going to do because odds are at that point, we're just going to import all of our food from another country that probably isn't taking as good a care of the environment. And so, yeah, I, I, I would say that pesticides are a complicated issue and that they can be dangerous if used incorrectly. But we need to we need to use these pesticides to provide for the the quality of living the standard of living people have today i mean you if you got rid of pesticides tomorrow the price of every single food item would skyrocket and la- the price of land people would be buying land to farm well like i said i don't think i think we just import all of our stuff which that doesn't make it any better i don't know what do you think mike all right so pesticides are a dual edged sword they have Great upsides, but they also have some downsides to them, too. Uh, In the U.S., about $200 million annually is used to uh, for 
pollination because the pesticides are directly related to reducing pollinators. So they need to implement that. And that comes from the U.S. Agriculture Department, which $200 million to create more pollinators or to repollinate a new system because of the pesticides did an X factor to that generation. I don't know if the CO2 is offset it. I just think maybe the CO2 is placed somewhere else. I think pesticides need to be used currently, but I don't think they're the best system we can use. I think we are still need to keep moving forward and trying to figure out different ways and methods to do it because again, it's a dual-edged sword. It's got great benefits. I mean, it keeps people from starving to death. It keeps food low, the prices at, at least, but it also has long-term effects depending on which chemical it is, at high economic effects for many different types of cultures of plants and for dispensing and using is also extremely expensive. I mean, about 70% of the quote unquote conventional grown fruits and vegetables, like, I don't know, like apples and bananas, they all have some sort of pesticide on them. I mean, hell, the biggest pesticides in the United States, I believe, are strawberries and spinach. The things we eat the most, we tend to want to protect, which leads to more pesticides on them. And from what I was reading, there's like 230, 260, above 200 different types of pesticides on everyday kind of common item foods. And again, everything in moderation is fine, but we're American. We don't want moderation. We want it all and we all want it now. So that makes me very cautious and very worried about that. So what I would say about that, and I've we've said this in multiple podcasts before, is that as Americans, we're so used to getting every food where we want it now. If we really wanted to make a big deal about reducing pesticide usage, we would get used to eating seasonally. We wouldn't grow crops where they don't need to be grown. And we would spend our dollars only buying food that's in season and not buying food that, you know, we don't normally get these foods year round or we'd get them canned or preserved or something. And so what I think you're seeing, what I think that that's more an effective is is just that is that we're growing all sorts of food in places that maybe it shouldn't be grown because of the demand for it like look at avocados right now avocados are trying to be grown everywhere just because there's a huge demand for them even if they don't naturally grow there and so you have to use there's more pests and stuff there you have to use more insecticide fungicide whatever to keep those things alive whereas if and I'm I'm not saying that I'm going to do this. I'm just saying that if people want to reduce pesticide usage, I don't think the answer is legislation. I think the answer is people saying, one, grow your own food. I mean, that's which is becoming more and more common nowadays. But also don't buy food out of season. Don't, you know, do that stuff that I, it's just this is an issue to me that it seems it's more of, I want the perfect solution and there is none and people aren't willing to, to kind of be accountable for their own part in the whole thing. I agree with that statement, but I would also want to add on that we're all in this together. So the fault can't just lie to one individual, especially for such a large industry, which is the agriculture industry. I think that's kind of a communion thing. So I agree and disagree at the same time. And since you brought up farming there are some natural methods which i think could be quite promising for the future so 
our ancestors, like Nick mentioned in the beginning, had methods to farm to keep away insects, rabbits, rats, other invasive species, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they seem to be making a comeback, like Nick said, with more people growing their food. I want to name two of them, and I want to talk about them a little bit because I think they could be very important for the near future and distant future. One of them being neem oil, N-E-E-M oil. This oil is disrupts the life cycle of insects, uh, biodegrades, it's non-toxic, uh, it doesn't harm bees, butterflies, and ladybugs, which are kind of farmers' friends. And I see us being able to engineer that chemical structure of neem oil to keep it as it is, but perhaps more effective. Maybe a different strain of it to help dispense on it and maybe replace some of the more deadlier, well, not deadlier, some of the more at-risk pesticides and same with peppermint i mean the best defense is a good offense peppermint in the past and current day helps repel flies mosquitoes ants beetles ticks even mice squirrels and rabbits but do note that peppermint doesn't kill them it just kind of repel it's a deterrent not necessarily a stoppage of it so if we could take that peppermint molecule and modify it to be more loud so it's more like uh when you spray fox piss to keep away certain other animals or uh wolf urine to keep away coyotes etc etc if we do that with peppermint and we do that during certain seasons or like neem oil since it disrupts insects uh so uh insect growth we do that during certain seasons it's more i hate to say it natural which is it's not the right word for it but it's only one coming to my mind but if we modify these molecules to be more beneficial to us, it seems to be, to me, Nick, I want to hear your opinion on it, bridging the gap between quote-unquote organic and synthetic. Do you, do you see where I'm coming from here? Yeah, I mean, it it does seem like your solution to pesticides is, is pesticides. Yes. I, I think pesticides are a good idea. I just think they have well, a I mean, lot that's, of... Well, like I said... Like talking about bracken fern, which is a fern that naturally produces its own pesticides that kills plants around it. A lot of, a lot of pesticides take place, take their, you know, get their inspiration or some piece from nature as well. I mean, that's, we don't think of everything by ourselves, but uh, it kind of, so your, your neem oil reminds me of, of 2,4-D in a sense. So 2,4-D is a, common pesticide used to be uh, a lot more common not as much anymore but it's you'll probably know this because you can spray it over your lawn and it will not kill the grass so there's a lot of certain pesticides that will only target certain species and leave others alone so you can spray your lawn or whatever and so we use it for roadside when we're trying to get rid of an invasive species like scotch broom and a heavier area like that will spray 2,4-D because the 2,4-D will, along with triclopyr, will kill the scotch broom, but they won't, it'll, and then it'll, it won't kill the grass. So it encourages grass growth and that grass growth competes for light and water resources with the scotch broom to help hinder it. So you're just talking about a more targeted approach, which is something that I think uh, we didn't really mention is how are herbicides chosen? Like, 
how do you decide what to spray on on your field stuff like that it's not like a standard you know you just you spray x y every year because so you need to go out and you look and you say okay i have dandelions coming in i have sword fern coming in and then certain you got to look at what's around and say okay you know am i going to be able to come back to this next year can i spray it again or do i only get one shot at this so every single prescription that you write is tailored to that specific area and this is something that i think is, is a good point to bring up uh like I said, glyphosate's pretty cheap, but most pesticides aren't, or at least herbicides. There's uh, especially the new stuff. There's a new uh Nick, are you sponsored by called... glyphosate? <laughs> no, I am I'm not uh so there's glyphosate and glyphophosphate, and they're two separate ones. But glyphosate's just like the most common one. And so glyphosate we use a lot in our site prep. It's relatively cheap. Thirty four bucks a gallon. I mean, that's that's pretty as cheap as you're going to get. Our most expensive, like Esplanade F, it's about uh, 100 bucks an ounce or something like that. It's for for five gallons, it's about five grand. And you apply at a seven ounce an acre rate. You can, I don't, can't remember the, exactly the label, but we apply at a seven ounce an acre rate. Some, a lot of stuff's in between anywhere from 64 to 100 something to 300 but it's expensive, so you don't want to waste it, especially if certain chemicals only treat certain species. So if you don't have that species there, you're wasting your time. One of the big, one of the things that I think people don't realize is how much time is spent determining wh what to spray, because you want to use the least amount of chemical to go the most, you know, you want the most bang for your buck. You want to get away with not using a bunch, but still getting your desired results. So there's a lot of just uh, time and effort that goes in the research of how to achieve that goal. And so I I don't want people to get the idea that this is just like some dude going out with, you know, a can of Roundup just spraying. And that's actually, um, so the Roundup, I think you get in stores now, most of it's pre-mixed because the public d didn't believe uh the label that said you only need like a certain amount of ounces to treat it and they just completely soak whatever they're spraying which is way over the label rate which isn't good and uh and that's when you get you know bad stuff going on because it uh the herb the plants don't die right away a lot of times it takes like three months or so for them to die you know so joe schmo homeowner sprayed roundup on his plants are still there a week later he was like oh it didn't work better spray it again and uh, so it's one of those things where, you know, I, I hate to I hate to be the guy who's like, oh, only professionals should do this. But maybe it's like a, more like a hunting license where you take a one time class, just go over like label rates and stuff. And just to learn that, yeah, you only need like three ounces of this stuff to kill certain whatever. You know, it's not just spray it completely out. And uh, most states have a. Um, if you think someone sprayed you or something nefarious happened, have a pesticide number perk. I think Oregon's like 811, their pesticide response center. And uh, as uh, as the person who does the spraying, 
if you want to call that number, go right ahead. Uh, we, when we do a lot of applications by neighbors, Mike, we have the state come out, whether it's ODA, Oregon Department of Ag, or State Forestry, come out to observe just to make sure we're, you know, crossing our I's, dotting our T's, and uh, we try and hold everyone to that that same standard of, you know, we're trying to do the right thing here. So, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry. I'd rather be, because here's, like I said, we're we're one mistake away from not having this happen. And so there's a lot of uh, just crazy stuff that goes on out here uh, that's about pesticides just because it's so such a volatile issue that I'd rather have someone come and investigate than the people make some video and then you only have proof that you were there and you sprayed it and these were your, you take your weather conditions every hour you take a, or if there's a weather change, you take your weather that includes your temperature, humidity, um, wind direction, wind speed, just to make sure you're not violating anything. And then you have that versus some, some person's word. And, uh, so it's easier just to have the state out there to begin with, but it's a, it's a pretty volatile issue. And I think like, yeah, there, just the way that our society is where we just regulate everything. It's, it's just kind of crazy to me that you don't have to have a license. And I'm not saying people should, I'm just saying like all the shit you got to go through to, to purchase a firearm, all the shit you got to go through to drive a car. Yeah. You can just go to the hardware store and pick up some roundup or whatever you want to spray. That is very interesting. What also is very interesting to me is monocultures. So for, I would say that most agriculture in the entire world is monocultures, which makes it easier for pesticides because you're only trying to protect one thing and remove everything else. At the same time, it also makes it harder. I think having non-monocultures farming would be better for A, needing less pesticides, B, need, that way you need also less fertilizers, less pollinators, a lot less everything. And I think that could be a possible solution of, I'm a big fan. All right. So I, I've said it once before on the podcast and I'll say it again. Nature gives us the answers. History tells us how to use them. Uh, we've seen ladybugs used before in the past to help fight other insects. Why not use other insects to fight other insects? I would say what, what Nick, you would, would you agree with me? We're saying the two biggest things that threaten crops are insects and invasive species. Uh, I'd say it depends on the crop and location. Uh, some, it might be a disease or rust or, yeah, some kind of disease. I'd say disease and insects per, per food would be the big two. Okay. Maybe. Then, well, I'll well, just work with me a little bit. We'll go with diseases and we'll go with insects. We'll say those are two major ones. Well, diseases, we could perhaps mod- modify the plants make with genetic engineering, make them a little bit more resilient to rust, like wheat resilient to rust it's exactly what we're doing yeah that kind of solves that problem now we're down to insects well insects i had a few ideas because we again we could use other insects to fight it there are insects that are friends and not our enemies like there are insects that if we had more than a monoculture they could survive off the culture that we don't harvest for profit but rather the ones we use for you know helping introduce more nitrogen into the soil, help something with the rhizosphere system with those plants of getting more nutrients into them. 
that way we can help kind of fight that insect mythology. And also stemming from meth- from insects, rats, mice, uh, birds, or stuff like that, we could add more, this is going to sound a little crazy, and Nick, I know you're not the biggest fan of it, but more snakes. We could add snakes to certain fields. I mean, there are already a lot of snakes in a lot of different fields, but if we added, you know, a common rat snake, non-venomous, but effective against killing rabbits or mice that would destroy the crop it seems like a win-win it seems like i don't like having just one solution be the only solution because that never works out you need to have multiple forms of attack at multiple different angles and a little bit of everything i I mean many hands make small work so to me insects i mean we can genetically engineer plants to be more resilient granted that's a whole nother argument for another conversation whether we should or shouldn't but we're doing it it's saving lives it's making people have more food in their bellies so the insects to me is the major part so another thought of was have a sacrificial crop have so before okay let's come back to sacrificial crop so i talk about the insects thing so the so that's what's called a a biological control so you have um, so we talked about a few other podcasts, but you have integrated pest management. It's essentially how do you treat your pests? First step, know your population. Okay, your population, how many pests are there? What's the most cost-effective way to treat that pest? What are your methods of control? The insects are the biological control method. It's a lot more expensive, and you don't get quick results. So that's kind of why it's not as popular um in i would say the industrial setting you're going to find it a lot more in like the experimental setting just because they can afford the treatment and they can wait to do it um you'll see it in some smaller like maybe more niche like organic farms or or something like that Uh, i haven't really seen it take place in uh like a huge setting yet. Not that it couldn't. I'm just saying that that's what I've seen is that it it seems to take a while. We had some insect control studies going on when I was in college with ladybugs. I forget what they're eating. This might be a little off topic, but I would say modern farming has only been around for about 60 years. I, I definitely think you could argue modern farming has been around longer, but I, I would say for the last 60 years is where the true modern farming has been so so made so and if we look at earth spectrum of scale i mean we haven't really done that many long-term experiments yet i mean long-term experiments to us might be a year but in relatively takes three years but i'm gonna go back well so this so this is the the problem with biological control it's like uh uh, what podcast we're talking about? But the predator p- prey population, right? So if you have a steady biological control, you have, you know, your prey population, your um, your pest population increases, and then after that, your predator population increases, but then your prey population goes down, but then your predator population goes down as well. Then your prey population skyrockets, and it's in that area that that's when you really need that insect population to rise. Certain, I mean, certain crops, it, it could be. You know, you may not have, you know, you know, another three months of reproductive cycle to have those uh, biological controls available to answer, the, say, the ladybugs or something. So you can 
get around that, I guess, by if you had like uh, some place there that just bred ladybugs that you could just like shoot out on demand, you know, you just get them right away. And But I think that might still be cost prohibitive just of the, you have to have a large population of ladybugs that may or may not be needed depending on the population of prey. Whereas if you make like an insecticide, you can make a certain amount and then people can use what they need right when they need it. So I think that timing might be an issue there as well. But um, unless you had something, I keep getting you off track. You're talking about a sacrificial crop. Well, I want to address the ladybug thing for a minute. I think a big issue is with monocultures. We've talked about with the disappearing bees where we're only focusing on one crop. It affects everything else from the pollinators to making it easier for diseases to take over entire fields, entire entire plantations. If we have non-monoculture farms, if we have even nearby forests, like you had 175 acres, right, of farmland, and you make two acres, like a mini forest for, you know, bees and ladybugs to pollinate, you're having both a long-term effect with the ladybugs and bees and a short-term effect with pesticides and insecticides you can have both you just have to be patient and you just have to think it through now for sacrificial crops i imagine if we have things such like peppermint neem oil that can deter insects and diseases and other plants etc etc there must be plants that drive the insects crazy absolutely drive them crazy so why not have some i don't know if you're having a you know a really big booming season of potatoes so you need cover crops so some farmers aren't are not gonna you know grow potatoes so their plots could be empty have them grow some cocaine-ish plant that bugs just absolutely love and get hooked on and addicted to but if we modify them a little bit make it poisonous for them or at least attract them to it where there's maybe like a toxin on them that that doesn't kill them right away, just disrupts right their breeding cycle. If we have a sacrificial crop, or e- or even like you said mentioned earlier, Nick, with there are some crops that natural dispense their own protection against other insects. If we have those alongside, say, soybean, corn, and I don't know if that would help. I don't know if it's a circumference area, like the pheromones releasing from the plant are a certain area. I don't know if the chemicals would be absorbed through the rhizosphere, rubbed off. I don't know this, but I'm just wondering, those are possibilities to me that seem not too far-fetched, and it seems like a lot less human intervention is needed. So I think that is something that might be more for like the back 40 farmer, where you can maybe surround your field with, um, I don't know why I want to take a wild stab in the guess. I want to say lavender repels a lot of pest insects. There, there's some purplish plant that repels a lot of pest insects. I, I forget what it is. But, uh, I mean, when you're talking about, like, over a 100-acre field, you plant the perimeter, even if you do, like a like, a grid system where you plant it in between, but then you have to you're going to drive over it when you you harvest everything else and there's and i i, I want to say two things so one 
you know, like if you have, if you're going like apples or blueberries or cherries or something, you know, those, those crops are, they're only going to be monocultures. So that's not something we can do everywhere as well as not, most farmers don't have the margin to plant a, like a cover crop that's not going to net them any money. And some places they, they can do that and they do do that. But some some farmers live, most farmers, I guess, live right on the edge of, uh, of poverty and wealth. And, uh, you know, throwing away a, you know, you're, maybe you do like a, a winter wheat or something. There's or, or some kind of, um, you know, off-season crop it had to be a pretty big financial benefit. I mean, a lot of farmers don't even apply fertilizer if the prices weren't good that year just because the margins are so small. So it, and maybe this is something that goes into the farm bill about an offset of, you know, maybe the United States population is willing to pay farmers to not use herbicides and that's that's fine if if the united states population wants to pay to not use it i would say i I think my biggest problem is people want to not use pesticides but also want to buy really low cost food but i I think that might be a solution i don't know what do you think mike about uh, your idea with like a large scale you know like a a hundred to to even say like thousand acre you know a plot of wheat or something so i think for large scale and small scale it's easy it's the medium scale that's the hardest to do i think for large scale if you're at that operational height you have room for preventive measures of some square footage land in the middle of your crop to be lavender or a mini forest to have natural plants and stuff like that to deflect if you're a small farmer you can be more experimental course that might be more risky because you might be living more hand to mouth the medium farmer i think is the more the more person in a more delicate situation because one mistake and now you're a small farmer one correct correct choice you're now a rich farmer for me the medium farmers are the highest at risk ones that those are those are the ones that are precarious with this situation. It'd be nice if, like, say, a blueberry farmer, since you brought it up, and lavender trees are about the same height, if, I don't know, you can get some tax break from Uncle Sam going, if one out of 20 trees, so if you have your rows, right, one out of 20 has it becomes a lavender instead of a blueberry, and you get X amount of tax cut, I'll be okay with that. Or that ground in between have some type of resilient grass or weed that helps deter like releases pheromones for that so you can run over it and it won't matter that'd be nice i think there are solutions i just think i think we need to think on them yeah but that uh generally that that ground in between is generally bare mineral soil because they don't want any competition with the blueberries and stuff like that but uh it doesn't always have to be just what the plant we're saying this is an aptitude no, I know. I'm just, uh, I'm just saying. I think, um, I think, I think this is actually more almost of a, a political, um, international trade issue than it is like a farmer issue. I mean, because a, a lot of uh, 
there's man i guess like it's, it's never been easy to be a farmer oh completely agree and and we could like if the united states if the citizens of the u.s said hey no more pesticides the first thing the citizens of the united states would do is turn around and buy cheaper products from outside the u.s that are full of pesticides and so i think uh you know and the, the for those of you who don't know, the U.S. does do a lot of grants for small organic farms, large organic farms, any non-pesticide stuff. It's pretty easy to get grants for your property if uh, if you don't spray pesticides compared to if you do. So they're already trying to financially incentivize people to use less pesticides. But I think there's not going to be a big change until, like I said, someone fucks up or the entire U.S. population says we're willing to bear the cost of not using pesticides because the price of everything from wood to wheat to get off the W's, um, apples, <laughs> will uh, will skyrocket. And I think, which uh, I do want to do a podcast on the Farm Bill because it is super interesting because it's part, the Farm Bill is, very socialist in nature there's a lot of handouts but those handouts are there for national defense because we want to grow food here and i think it's just kind of an interesting mix of uh like everything you got you know like i said defense agriculture morality like just all around interesting but uh yeah i don't think i I don't see i don't really see any large changes coming up until someone fucks up that's my guess and that's probably for most things, I would say, no matter what you are. I mean, not, humans are very reactive, especially the United States government is very reactive. We don't change until something bad happens. What if I offered a third door? Instead of a red pill and a blue pill, I offered you a green pill. Pill called science. God damn it, I love her. Now, a scientist by Greg Woodery at the Carnegie Mellon University has created a nanoparticle well, specifically gold nanoparticle. It's mainly they use gold because it's easy to identify in a plant because plants don't have gold, so you can see how it goes through its system. But this nanoparticle that targets and uses the stomata, I believe that's how you pronounce it, of the leaves. It's stomata? Stomata, tomato, tomato, uh, of the leaves of the plant. So this method goes into the leaves, I, I just for lack of better words, pours and goes through. Well, a lot of diseases, bacteria specifically, that like we were talking about, like rust. It'd be like the lungs of the plant. Pores work better for this this analogy I'm making. So okay, I'm going to stick with pores. <laughs> pores okay. are a great way for bacteria to get in and, uh, you know, diseases you were talking about, like rust. Well, these nanoparticle can go in there and help add a protective layer, can help introduce antibacterial bodies to it and uh uh, you know disease preventing diseases into it and because it's a nanoparticle its half-life is even shorter than everything all the rest of the molecules it's also super effective because it doesn't get into if i'm not mistaken humans as easy for like skin contact because it's nanoparticle size that only fits you know certain structures but here's the other cool part. We brought it up earlier with fertilizer. This method could be used to also dispense fertilizer directly to the plant. 
So not only would you be dropping your pesticides, you'd be dropping your herbicides in the same batch, and they would both beneficial the the plants. So you wouldn't have two different types of methodology of dispensing pesticides and herb and uh, herbicides and insecticides and fertilizer. They'd be all combined into one, and it would just go. Okay, hold on. I'm very confused right now. So generally, you do your fertilizer after your uh your uh spray your chemical spray whatever your site prep or your grass spray because if you do your fertilizer first you're applying that fertilizer to everything so does nanobots can figure out your crop species and apply herbicide there only so and then not apply it to other stomata so say you have a uh all right, you have mixture A and mixture B. Mixture A being your pesticide, mixture B being your fertilizer. Well, you're, you're growing uh, soybeans, and soybeans... How do, how do I know you're from the Midwest? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Answer A, corn. Answer B, soybeans. <laughs> can't, I can't help where I'm from. If we have... That plant, the soybean plant, it needs, I can't remember what soybeans, I think it needs phosphorus. If we need, if we mix in nanoparticles that contain phosphorus or uh, whatever it needs, and we have the insecticide or pesticide in B, and we mix them together, right, and we can dispense them all at the same time. Because a lot of pesticides are, I would say, coating-based. These, with the nanoparticles, they can be the inside. So instead of wearing a hazmat suit to prevent to getting the cold you're now taking a vitamin to prevent yourself from getting the cold does that make the analogy more simple more more understandable Nan- uh... nanoparticles is taking the multi is taking a multivitamin one that helps you grow the fertilizer and one that helps prevent diseases that'd be the right best. so I, I understand what it's doing what i don't understand is how it's targeting specific species i i i what do you mean? It's just like spraying. So why is it so? It's only helping the soybeans, is what you're saying? No, I'm just. I just use like it's only applying the fer- the herbicide, or the fun the fertilizer to the soybeans. If you had no, if you had a giant uh, crops of like you know like eight different plants together, it'd probably get all of them, because I don't know the size of the stromata of each the lungs of each plant. I imagine they're all kind of relatively the same size. That's just an educated guess here. It would get into all of them. But A, you'd have to use a lot less. It, I think, lasted longer because it's in time the system. And I think we can dispense different types of pesticides into it. This is this is very relatively new. Uh, Greg Lurie came out with this, I believe, in June 2020. So this is, I mean, that's why they were using gold instead of another pesticide. So it's very promising new research. But it seems like the fight for, against outside invaders the insects the diseases is now going to be an internal fight of the plant rather than external fight of the plant because would you agree for most herbicides that it's almost like a coating for the plant so are you are you talking about the plant that we are trying to like our crop species that we're trying to protect that herbicides are like a coating to protect that plant Yes, if you spray a blueberry bush with herbicides, the pesticide isn't going directly into the blueberry plant. It's also it's getting on top of their coating, the leaves, so when bugs land on it and eat it, they die. 
breaks up their cycle, repels them by uh, pheromones, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess that would be how insecticide works, but uh, herbicide that affects plants, it's it uh, would get sprayed onto the leaves Sorry, I... or into the ground, and it would get taken up into the plant through that way. Yeah, and all right, for, for insecticides then, just humor me. It, you would agree with that it it's a coating? Yes. Yeah, it's it's applied from the air and it comes over and is on top of your crop species. So then the 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 your target species doesn't like it, goes away or, or or dies depending on what you're using. Yes, it's like a coat of armor against insects. Okay, now imagine instead of having the armor, you have it internal. That'd be the nanoparticles, and if you can you can direct that with the herbicides, you can you make nanoparticles that so. So the nanoparticles would, what exactly would they do with the insects? Like they, they kill the insects. I, I'm confused how the nanoparticles are inside the plant and then affecting like the insects and stuff outside the plant. All right. So when you spray insecticides on a plant, there's this thing called rain that sometimes washes them off. There's things called time, sun, air exposure, wind, all this stuff that removes them. Correct? Yes. Now, when you have certain plants that produce their own insecticides correct yes okay so you, it's essentially a shortcut to genetic modification right you're making the you're making it so the plants can produce their own toxins it's to me a great example of this be would be the polio vaccine where you get stabbed in the arm a little bit and you develop i think that's polio right is it polio or smallpox the one we get stabbed in the arm a bunch of times and a scab forms and that falls off I, I mean, it's, if I had to guess, it sounds like smallpox, but I have no idea. It's kind of like that, where it's a another system introduced into the plant to help the plant. It doesn't change the plant. It just combines, not combines, combines a bad word for it. It just emphasizes the plant's features, I guess. It's a combination. So, like running. You can run barefoot, but having running shoes fucking helps. It's the running shoes for plants, nanoparticles. Okay, I see what you're saying now. It just, it kind of seems like a long walk for a short drink of water, which is pesticides. It seems like your solutions are all pesticides yes, in some this form all, or another. This At is less no, rate. This can now be changed. So we're now using more natural stuff. So it can change the plant more. Not, well, not change the plant more, but add features to the plant that other plants have without changing and genetically modifying the plants. Also so essentially, so you, with these, you'd be able to like, uh, I don't know, to like turn them off. Like, so once you're ready to harvest, so say it's like uh, a corn crop or something, right? Um, once it's uh, harvest time, you like what you EMP your field, and then that removes that all the the nanoparticles and their effects from the corn, kind of or. No. So what I... Do you just eat them? uh, No. Uh, No to both. From what I understand of these nanoparticles, they're not advanced robotics. I wanted to shit gold. (laughs) Dude, (laughs) so do I, Nick. So do I. From what I understand is these nanoparticles have a cycle where they go into the leaves. They're much smaller, less, less chemicals are needed, less structures are needed. They get in the leaves... They prevent the insects, and then they go through the entire plant system and dispense through the roots. So, by the time, so you just 
display them when they're blooming, prevents them from getting eaten. By the time you harvest them, they're free and clear of what else. Again, this gotcha. is all so very been... new. Hang on. This is all very new research. I mean, less than a year old. So it might be all hearsay. That's a huge asterisk on this. But it does have huge potential. I mean, I'm, I, I believe it. I mean, the agriculture is, it may not seem like it, but probably one of the leading industries for new technologies. Um, I, I'm curious if, I don't know if you would know this, but are they reusable? Like, can you use them the next year again? Or is it like a one-time deal? This has only been done in the lab setting and they've used gold because they were easy, it was easy to follow gold through a plant's entire body because, well, x-rays, MRIs, and there's no golden plants, so there's no interference. So they've yet to do real-world testing, but there's always a beginning to a good story. Yeah, I mean, I have no I have no doubt that in the future we're going to be have shit like that in all of our plants. I mean, but I think um, with, just like with pesticides, so this is something that... Uh, people bring up all the time is uh, plants certain or specifically herbicides plants get resistant to certain herbicides which is why you can't just use the same mix year after year you really have to think about what you're doing because uh, like in my area like uh, dandelions i think it's dandelions they've grown a resistance to uh, glyphosate some in certain areas just because of like i said glyphosate's what like pretty old they've been spraying glyphosate for a while so the dandelions have had time to already go through so many evolutions that they can found a resistant gene but you can still kill them with other herbicides and so it's it's always a constant battle of finding it a new solution to your problems it's not the same thing year after year but if you have like you're saying mike like some kind of like nanobot thing where you could maybe program it every year then maybe we would be once again one step ahead of nature and then the next year they'll take it back and then the next year we'll take it back because try as hard as we can we can never control nature we just have to learn to live with it see a big promising for me for nanoparticles is we might not have to modify them year after year we might be able to do trojan horses inside the plant inside the insects so insects, I mean, resilient little creatures, they are. I mean, hell, there's jokes that cockroaches can survive nuclear blasts for a reason. Well, everything's hard to break from the outside. But inside, we might have more effect. Getting the nanoparticles inside the insects, we might be able to do more damage to them, break up more cycles, make them desire new foods. I mean, hell... I didn't think about it until now, but we could genetically engineer, I don't know, let's say flies to target different crops than the crops are currently going for and have them compete with other flies that are more natural based. Maybe instead of genetically modifying plants, we genetically modify insects, which also sounds like a horrible idea and a great story for a horror movie. But if we create new competition amongst their own species, but we control which species likes what food. It's also another possible avenue. Well, Mike, like they said in Starship Troopers, the only good bug is a dead bug. <laughs> I have not seen that movie in a very long time. 
just another another problem that pesticides might have solved. Well, this is a little way off topic, but I'm surprised they didn't use that in the movies. You didn't see like any chemtrails going on. Yeah, that's uh, we were a long time in the future, but still somehow in the past. <laughs> well, Nick, do you have anything else to add with pesticides? I think we touched on a lot. I mean, if anyone has any questions, you can hit us up on our YouTube or Instagram and shoot us a question. I do this stuff for work, so hopefully I can solve your your problem. Can they find us on Twitter? No, you cannot find us on Twitter. Because, say the line, Nick. Because Twitter is a dumpster fire. Yay! I love that every time. Oh. But out of curiosity, Nick, when you're not spraying pesticides or out in the woods or handling our social media, what books are you reading? I'm currently reading kind of in between books so in the meantime i'm reading a book called deep survival the science of who lives and who dies in survival situations so yeah what are you reading mike i am finishing up dune i'm on book three the last couple chapters and yeah i'm excited for the new movie which they seem to remake a new movie every couple years so this could probably fit in any time you listen to this podcast. But I like Dune. I, I even rereading it. I'm not a big fan of rereading books. So that says the testimony of how good Dune is. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to the Backyard Philosophy Podcast. We rarely finish a podcast without missing a point we wanted to bring up, so let us know what we forgot. And if you have a topic you want us to talk about, let us know at Backyard Philosophy on Instagram and Backyard Philosophy Podcast on Facebook.